It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. So, yeah, I mean, I've been talking to sponsored athletes, you know, as I do over at the Enormacast. Uh, not not exclusively, but we, we go into that territory. And, um, you know, I've been talking to people about the requirements that go into sort of being a sponsored athlete now. And, and you know, we've lamented the social media a lot on the run out. And I started to think about the differences between what we grew up with you know, in the in the nineties, I, I would think in the aughts as what a sponsored athlete was and who they were and what they had to do to get their free shoes or whatever they were getting. And kind of what happens now is is pretty interesting. And I recently had a chat with Genevieve Walker and she lives on the road. She lives in her van. She's just a climber, but she's sort of gotten into this kind of sponsored climber scene and thinking about the pressure she has to do like social justice work, to do environmental justice work is kind of heavy, you know, Mm. and also to be putting out content all the time when, as we've talked about on here before, like the, the gatekeepers were the magazines 25 years ago. And basically if you were a sponsored athlete, either you or the company that was sponsoring you was trying to get your name in that magazine and that was kind of the end all be all of what it meant to be a sponsored athlete really before youtube before social media before instagram all those sorts of things and it just kind of started making me contemplate like how hard are these people working for their free shoes now versus when we started climbing and and what it means to be a sponsored athlete seems to have changed quite a bit I don't have a ton of insight into that because I'm not a sponsored athlete. Although one day I think I'm, I'm going to be <laughs> climbing Any at minute. a level. Any yeah. minute. Any They're minute. online too. Sportiva's online too. <laughs> Do we have multiple uh, lines now? I don't even know. <laughs> you know, the flashing button on the telephone from the olden times. It's like, I got to take this call. It's Sportiva. but yeah i mean you know you've seen the the requirements of the job you know transition from being someone who just climbs hard and that's it to just climbs hard and has a blog to just climbs hard has a blog and also does all this video work to all of the you know all of that plus has a nonprofit in their name that is you know like building schools in around the world or something. Right. I don't know. And the other thing that's kind of mixed into this is that what it means to be a sponsored athlete as a climber has always been a bit of a mystery and continues to be. I think people wonder what it takes, you know, what you have to do on a daily basis as that sponsored athlete. And that's no different from 1992. Like we, we didn't know either, you know, why is that guy sponsored when I know this local dude at my crag who climbs way harder than that dude? Or, yeah, it's, or it's, all those sorts of games yeah. in your head. Like, well, what does it mean? Is he, you know, does he get a, what kind of check does he get? Does he just get money to do his trips? Does she get free shoes? Does she fr- get free clothes? Does she get money? Like, no, nobody's ever known. And I don't think anybody still knows really what goes into it. That was always the critique is that there was this assumption that there was some kind of meritocracy built into the sponsored athlete game and climbing, like some right. kind of meritocratic structure that, you know, would, that that was like perfectly aligned to a person's deserving of, you know, money and product or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, that's obviously that's never been the case, but it's never been the case more now. I mean, right. that's just like. I, I can't even imagine that that would be a requirement for a lot of these companies now. And so I, I think a, a, people maybe of our generation have a little bit of a hard time or just a dissociation of trying to understand like what is what is actually the point of being a sponsored athlete because it was always this way of just paying homage to or just acknowledging the hierarchy of, you know, what someone is bringing to the climbing game, you know, it may not be a perfect 
you know, equation, but you can see that there's some kind of logic to this person is getting all of the accolades, all of the the climbing shoes and, you know, the the, climbing shoes, all the dollars, all of the, yeah. So many TC (laughs) pros. Um, Well, it's funny because we keep referencing that and that, I mean, it's still like a big part of the whole thing because you know, a lot of times when you see someone who is an ambassador or a sponsored athlete, quote unquote, to it, that's literally all that's happening mm-hmm. is that whenever they need climbing shoes, Sportiva, 510, now Adidas, you know, Evolve or whoever gives them shoes whenever they ask. And that's the, the beginning and the end of their quote unquote sponsorship. Yeah. It's funny because for 40 years, like that's been like the, the litmus test for, are you somebody? Do you get free shoes? Right. <laughs> but a lot of people don't know that. I mean, a lot. Of, I think a lot of climbers don't know that when someone has on their resume that they're a 5'10 athlete or whatever, that just simply means that they get like a pair of Anasazis like once a quarter. <laughs> exactly. Like you know? literally like that's it. Like once yeah. a quarter. You get approach shoes, you get your, your, your a couple of pairs of climbing shoes. Like 5'10 bandana. Yeah. Exactly. You don't have to resole anymore. You can just throw away those shoes when they or the sole blows out. Yeah. So it's always like murky what the sponsorship game even means. Like, mm-hmm. how much are these people making? Are they just getting shoes or are they making six figures? And that's also been an interesting thing to watch how that's changed in the last, you know, 20 and 30 years. I would say safe, safely say that the top climbers are doing quite well financially from yes. their companies. Yes. And, I would well, say main, that mainstream uh, in, mainstream interest in climbing benefits them more than anybody, mm-hmm. in my opinion. It's an interesting existential question about what the pro athlete or pro climber even represents. Like, what purpose does that person serve in society? You know, and it's changed. Our our opinion of that has changed drastically with the rise of like the influencer economy on mm-hmm. Instagram, mm-hmm. where people who might be the most vapid, uninteresting people on the planet have, you know, 6 million followers on Instagram for reasons X, Y, and Z, and essentially offer no, nothing other than a zombie army of likes on right. their feeds. And for some reason, companies have considered this to be the only thing worth putting their advertising dollars into because they're filled with people who are completely uncreative and lacking in ideas and see the the un, honestly assess the death of like the traditional you know outlets for advertising right. and so they're looking for this new way to justify their roles first and foremost and then secondly to justify some kind of advertising spend by metrics that can be evaluated on something like social media. Mm-hmm. The if you look at any of these like feeds with like six, you know, 20 million followers or whatever, and you look just look at the comments, they're all completely insane. Like they I don't even <laughs> think they're real people. They're just there's no honest discussion. There's no right. like it's just like complete garbage. And so mm-hmm. What are these companies paying for? Do they want like, you know, this like Russian troll bot farm poster to like see that, you know, this influencer is, you know, promoting their new Mm -hmm. fizzy drink on Instagram? Like, I I, I just don't get it. Like, it just seems so patently insane that this is like the direction it's going. This is where climbing is headed to. It's like gone from this vaguely meritocratic thing this like reward system based on how hard you climb to we just want someone with who has who can like ostensibly justify lots of eyeballs on their whatever it is they say or do one thing that's interesting about that as 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 climbing sort of wants to become you know sort of more accepting to you know different types of people coming to climber whether it's people of color whether whether it's binary genders, all all those sorts of things. It's interesting that those influencers, you know, let's face it, they, they also tend to be physically the norm. Okay. So it's like part of their influence is that they're good looking. 
you know, whether it's mm-hmm. guys or girls, and they can post sexy shots in their vans with their, you know, their sort of thong ass hanging out from underneath some blankets, or the dude, you know, just woke up perfectly quaffed and, and pumped up as he stretches. It's like we're we're trying to embrace both things at the same time. But I would say, too, is that one thing about a lot of the core climbing companies you know they've they've broadened their appeal of their athletes to not just the hardest climbers but it there still is a level of understanding that these people have to be at, at at some level you know legit in appealing to their climbing audience and by and large the hard climbing people whether it's Emily Harrington you know Adam Andra people like that are being rewarded in the the hard climbing realm yes. where they're, they're, they're doing quite a bit of both and you're not on the North face team necessarily because you have a bunch of Instagram followers and you have like, you post a lot of shots with your shirt off. You still have to bring something to the table for, for a lot of these, you know, more core climbing companies. And, and I think they're defending that to a certain extent while they have indeed broadened their, their appeal with uh, with different types of athletes, they have to be still based in you know an actual climbing world. Yes, but I mean, I think the critique is not that it's like fully gone that direction, but just right. that there's like a creep happening toward toward less substance and more you know just fluff or whatever. Which you know I don't disagree with that. I think that that, that kind of seems to me to be the trend. But just to like go. Back to my broader existential point about the professional athlete in climbing, like, Mm -hmm. do you think that anything would change about climbing if there were no sponsored athletes? Yeah, it's hard to say, man, because, you know, like one thing within the industry that's well known is that like Yvonne Chouinard, the guy behind Patagonia, though, I believe he's, you know, I don't think he's very involved with the day-to-day activities of Patagonia anymore, but he's always been against this idea of sponsoring athletes, you know, Mm. and I, that's just been kind of the scuttlebutt in the industry. Like he, he's an old school, hardcore guy. That's just like, yeah, why, why are we giving money to these, these people prancing around climbing? So, you know, there, there has been a questioning even within the deep industry of this, of what is the actual value of paying these people to do what they're probably going to do anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think that that idea of like what they would do with or without uh, (laughs) their sponsorship or just like whether they would be doing it anyway is kind of the, it's kind of the litmus test in a way that you kind of, you use to evaluate their, their status as Mm -hmm. a professional climber. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I want to believe that if, if, if everybody dropped Adam, he would still, you know, scrape to, he'd be working some like, day job so that he could go to Flattinger, you know, for a few months a year and, mm-hmm. and still do the hardest goddamn route. Well, look you know, at Joe think, Kinder. I mean, he's, yeah. he's kind of living proof of that. He lost all right. his sponsorships and he's still, he's, you know, well, for a while he was when pre COVID he was, you know, working basically a minimum wage job setting roots in a gym and to, in order to support his climbing habit and is still putting up, you know, five fifteen new routes in the in the desert or whatever. It can be done in terms of the achievements, but I think that the, you know, just to like play devil's advocate to, for a second or give the other side. There's, you know, not everyone can be a professional athlete, even right. if they climb as hard as all the professional athletes. Like there's there's a certain temperament and personality type that mm-hmm. lends itself to being a public facing person and allowing yourself to be used as marketing material or whatever. And and, and that's actually yeah. something that's changed in my lifetime as a climber mm-hmm. because it really, honestly, like in the, it, it, when I first started climbing, like that's it, you had to be a hard climber. In a lot of ways, there was, there wasn't really media to find out what your personality was like. Mm-hmm. And as soon as there was media to find out who you really were as, as a human, there was a lot of people who were great climbers who weren't great people. And as soon as there was an ability to understand that by the public, companies dropped them. They mm-hmm. they got rid of them because it was like, okay, this isn't good business. I don't care how hard you climb. And so it's an interesting thing is that like it, it is now, again, back to my first premise is that it's like this full package. Like we need everything from you. 
we need you to climb hard, but we also need you to be this great ambassador. And if you're at events, you got to be cool to everybody. And even on a day where you think you're by yourself and some other people show up, like you got to be cool because those people can go back and, and slander you on, on, on the internet that you were a dick to them, or you cut a tree down in the case of, of Joe Kinder or whatever, like you got to be cool, you know? Yeah. But don't you think that's a problem? I mean, like I, this goes back to another conversation we've had of uh, just about the, you know, the, the freaks and the, the losers of climbing who are becoming fewer and fewer <laughs> for better and worse, but here's right, the worst right. aspect of it. You know, it's the, it's the lack of the, the, the just the oddballs, you know, everyone becomes more and more the same. I don't think that's a, necessarily the, a good thing. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, if you get into climbing in a, in a, in a deep, deep level, you, you find your sort of cult heroes, mm-hmm. whether they're, they're the most sponsored athlete or not. You know, it's like, for me, like I have this weird fascination with Doug Reed. Do you know who mm. Doug Reed is? I do. Yeah. Yeah. This, the, the, the Southern climber, the, the new river gorge guy, like just disappeared from climbing. I don't know if he's even climbing anymore. But I have this like weird fascination with him. He was never a sponsored athlete. I don't know. He probably got free shoes from somebody at some point, but who cares? But, you know, I just like, I want to know more about that dude. So, you know, and, and I think like Dean Potter is a, is a really good example of that. Like he was such this counterculture figure that eventually, you know, he did some things where Patagonia was forced to drop him. And I say forced because they have a public image to maintain and what he was doing was against their public image, you know, specifically posting videos of him climbing on delicate arch was the thing that kind of broke the camel's back. But there was a a bunch of stuff leading up to that. He was an outspoken counterculture person dropped and uh, you know, but I think his legend just continued to grow. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I do have to say that my professional climbing career prospects are looking dimmer and dimmer as we talk about this just but but only because of my personality type i think that the my climbing skills are going to soon be on par with the alex magoses of the world but you know there's just no place for you know for misanthropes like me to to make a living these days well look i actually think that i actually am a really excellent prospect for full six-figure sponsorship. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Please do. It's because, because, look, every time I go on sort of a guided trip or when I, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out with you and, and, and on Steph Davis's crack clinics, I'm talking to these, these guys who they're professional, they're older, they've got all this money to buy gear, and they don't have a lot of time to climb, but they still just buy stacks of gear and you've seen it even on those trips where somebody pulls out a rack of like triple pristine ultralights you know like something i would never afford like i even as someone who climbs all the time i am not banging out like whatever those things cost like a hundred bucks each or something like that to get they have the money and the desire to do it and so i think that that group of people is underrepresented in climbing mm. the the 50 and above like you do not see like super hardcore sponsored climbers at my age it's true and i think that i would speak to those people out there who you're, you're, are, you're making a case for the the lack of representation in this demographic plus exactly. the, the purchasing power that they have at these brands Bingo, sir. And if anybody out there is listening from any of those companies, I am available to be a sponsored climber for your company because I'll tell you what, those doctors, those lawyers, those, you know, husbands and wives who don't, who get a few weeks a year to climb, they just don't necessarily see that much inspiration in the 22 year old uh, comp climber. I'm going to tell you. And uh, I'm here to pick up that slack for you, company to pay me to go out and rock climb and uh, do my rad shit, my almost sort of rad shit. Next time, 
Next time we go out to the desert together, I'll, yeah. I'll take some glamour shots of you in your in your yeah. RV. Some you backlit, always do. Some backlit photos, uh, maybe a silhouette with with mm-hmm. some morning wood peeking out. Um, <laughs> you know, some something a little scandalous and, and well, because and, yeah, with some soulful some, some soulful ca- soul. captions. <laughs> you have to imply that that you can still be virile above fifty. <laughs> That's a big part of the the appeal. <laughs> we'll get you sponsored by uh, the AARP and and uh, exactly. Viagra and Viagra. Viagra, there's some money in Viagra fucking sponsorship. That's the other thing about about climbing sponsorships. We didn't even talk about is like how piddly it is. Like how even like somebody like the North Face. I don't care how much money they have. They don't have freaking pharmaceutical money. Mm-hmm. They don't have Walmart money. They don't have like United Airlines money. Like, why aren't climbers like banging it out in in these big companies that have, you know, like a hundred times the capital that that even our biggest climbing companies have? Like, that's the money. Toyota, like, fuck, man, give me some Toyota money. I mean, it's this is pr- pretty much the only progression that's left in our sport. Yeah, exactly. Do, t- does Toyota want pictures of morning wood? <laughs> Lucas Roman is a climber and writer from Southern California. His new book is Aperture Alike, a collection of stories about unique individuals in the adventure world, including the late Brad Gobright. This conversation references a history of addiction and alcoholism. If this is something that you struggle with, Lucas is available to speak with anyone who has questions or needs help. You can find him on Facebook at Luke Roman or on Instagram at Aperture underscore alike. I, I didn't realize that you guys had this connection, which I don't know if you both realized that you had this connection. Well, Lucas did, I guess, but of uh, this connection to this gym and, and Brad Gobright. Chris, did you realize that this was... That well, Lucas no, and so I didn't know he was going to be beaming in from Costa Mesa yeah. until he said it when we, okay. we got in here, which is, uh, you know, Southern California, Orange County uh, sort of suburb. And yeah, I used to live there. I worked at the Recreation Gym down there. And, um, you know, when I talked to Brad... A while back, we, you know, made this connection that he actually did come to a birthday party and start climbing in that gym while I was still working there. Although we, you know, didn't really connect. I mean, he would have just been some little doughboy kid that came in for a, a birthday party. So I, you know, it's not like I would have remembered that, but it was a cool connection. So it's good to hear you from uh, down there in Costa Mesa, Lucas. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it, it definitely, as far as when I first came into that gym, I would say one of the immediate appeals aside from the fact that it was probably one of the only gyms in Costa Mesa or Orange County at the time. Immediately, the staff was super friendly, a bunch of like, you know, college age climber surfer dudes, but they made it clear that there was already like a history to that gym that was steeped in the kind of like tradition and outside climbers. There were there were members who were putting up first ascents, who were doing kind of big wall missions. And uh, yeah, like it just had a sense of history in place. Uh, obviously, like people like Margie, and Dave Evans, folks that were a part of the old Stone Master Club, Randy Vogel, those were the folks I walked in with and looked up to right away. And then, of course, you know, for somebody contemporary or closer to my age, I saw somebody younger than me who was Brad flying around and talking about going to Joshua Tree and all this stuff. And uh, it just kind of went hand in glove. Yeah, it was cool. It was a good fit. And uh, it, it was clear to me that it wasn't just like uh, a gym that was there just for profit or something. It was a, a larger community. Something that's, I think, yeah, it's a common thread to, I think, you know, most of climbing gyms that are older. And uh, it's, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, I mean, it is an actually really old climbing gym as far as, as those go. It was uh, definitely, I think, a, one of the very precursors to like a community-wide kind of gym. And it's in an old building. It's an industrial building, which a lot of old gyms were. They weren't built bespoke like they are now. So yeah, and and you know even um, back when I went there it was the same thing because I walked in and and uh, or worked there, um, and Dale Bard was uh, was actually on the staff, which was pretty wild for me yeah. being a big wall climber. So yeah, it even happened to me twenty some years ago or whatever walking in there. So you're absolutely right. So Lucas, you are a root setter. You're in nursing school, and you've just written a, a new book that we wanted to talk about today called Aperture Alike. So you've kind of got this interesting mix of skills and interests. A big part of your book is dedicated to the late, great 
Brad Gobright. I think you called him your first climbing partner. So why don't you just like give us a, you know, an overview of who you are and why you've written this book and, and we can go from there. Yeah, a little bit about me. I like like you mentioned, Brad was my first climbing partner, which at the time I would have never expected uh, his trajectory or mine to go the ways they went. Uh, he went full dirt bag, and I did to a degree right around the same time. I think we both really hit hit the road in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. He was actually the first person to take me to Yosemite. Did a bunch of the classics. He mostly rope gunned everything, and I did my best to struggle up what I could. And then, yeah, that took a couple of years. It went far and wide. I met a bunch of cool folks that some of which ended up in the stories uh, in Aperture alike, you know, all throughout the U.S., Mexico, Thailand, Canada. But I did it for a few years and uh, and then kind of took a different turn. Uh, my life's trajectory kind of went back out of climbing into some personal stuff. Uh, I ended up getting lost and drinking religiously for a handful of years and working jobs in different service industries just to like pay rent and try to be responsible. But that all sort of took a dark turn after a couple of years. I would say that when I came back into some semblance of light around 2014 or 15, um, I kind of found climbing anew, which was great. Uh, but I also realized that the mark of most of my climbing experience was internally focused and it was important to me to start shifting the lens a little bit in the other direction. Uh, so I started to realize both the makeup of my climbing, my partnerships, and the experience at large was more outward facing. I was more interested in what relationship you could build uh, and what people that I was climbing with were going through and how they navigated that. Uh, and I think that that was really the first kind of seeds that led into the, the attempts of a writing style that I probably have. I don't even know what that is. I started writing as a personal discipline, almost like journaling. It was really fulfilling on a personal level. And eventually I would share that with a few friends and they would kind of have decent feedback and say, yeah, I should keep doing it. Uh, one thing led to another. And, you know, Brad being my first climbing partner, fortunately, of course, when he passed away about a year and a half ago, uh, I had just been writing a short piece on him that I didn't really have any aim for. But when he passed, it became uh, apparent to me that it was uh, it was worth sharing. So I put a few other parts. I kind of rounded it off. It was it had been sitting in my computer for about six or eight months untouched, and so I just kind of put a few details back into it to round it off and uh, published it online. And it got shared a ton. I think not on not on the value of my writing, but probably on his character and what what he meant to other people. But that led to somebody who uh, runs a publishing company getting wind of it, reading it, and then contacting me and saying, hey, we'd like you to uh, do some writing for us. So uh, the offer came kind of out of the blue. And uh, here we are today. Well, congrats. I mean, it's no small feat to to write a book. So the book itself is not strictly about climbing, though. There's other sports and characters that you draw in. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and what you see as the thread that connects them all. Uh, yeah, so I think the the cheesy line that I came up with uh, is that it's about the internal landscapes of the outside experience. And I think that's what I was hoping would connect all of the dots. I, I also took a leap of faith that most of the folks that might be reading it would be sort of in our community or the outdoor community in general. And uh, my experience has been that those worlds always cross, you know? And so I, I don't think it's a stretch to think that most of us know a few people who may base jump or skydive or highline or do these sports that are in there or also trail running uh, tends to be big, I think, in the climbing community, even if it's just on rest days. Uh, and so it just sort of became the somehow over a couple of years, I think I just looked around at the orbit of my friendships and relationships and uh, saw people doing a variety of things. Uh, I think for my purposes, that was... I was hoping that would be important because I also wanted to represent different sports, different people, male, female, uh, professional, layperson alike, and and show sort of that there's a lot of similarities in, in the inner journey that these people take, you know, themes of self-doubt, of self-realization, uh, looking for partnership, looking for meaning. Also, people who happen to be professional, what I noticed is that there was a lot of people that were uh, having a difficulty separating the professional aspect from maybe the personal deeper, uh, you might even say spiritual aspect of what climbing or an outdoor discipline does for them. And uh, I think that I noticed there was a lot of similarities and I, it was my hope or aim to showcase that in a variety of vignettes or short stories 
um, with different characters at different stages of their life. Like I said, different professional or, or lower ambition of performance. Uh, and hopefully I think that if you take a sum total of it, uh, perhaps it's, it's a small representation of what kind of what, what the hell we're doing out there. Um, I, I think that those answers are there. I think the answers are personal to each individual. And sometimes you can articulate them on a community level. The idea being that, you know, it may not be uh, totally fair to just say we're out there fun hogging all the time. I think there's more to it that, that we do when we go outside and when we seek adventure and revelation. At the same time, I never wanted it to be super esoteric. And my application rule is that anything you're going to learn in the outdoor experience should be applicable to life in the lowlands. Otherwise, it's kind of, you know, just blowing smoke, I suppose. So that was the aim. And uh, I don't claim to be an expert, but hopefully I did something. It's actually kind of, a, I think, a small section of the book, right, That's that deals with Brad because it's it's set up as essays on sort of each person or each pursuit. I was kind of wondering, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about somebody else in the book or some other character that you think jumps out in terms of, you know, if we're climbers and, and you, I want to introduce everybody to this person, as opposed to climbers coming in with so much knowledge about Brad. Um, is there someone in there that you could say would jump out and say, yeah, this is another place where I think the climbers would really drop into this experience as well? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I think that uh, there's a couple that come to mind. Hopefully, I can I can summarize them real quick. First one would be a shared friend of all of ours would be Saeed Belhaj, uh, who you've had on the Enorma cast, and Andrew, I know you're buddies with him. Uh, Saeed and I have met five years ago or so, six years ago, 2015 in uh, Moab, uh, just on separate trips, and we clicked right away. Uh, I think I've got a lot of interest in things he has interest in, mostly being you know uh, music of Africa, uh, like deeply spiritual music. And also the rhythmic stuff. Anyway, Saeed and I got on real quick. And then like within two weeks, we were in Lebanon together, which is where my partner uh, of 10 years is from. She was born and raised there. And I said, Saeed, why don't you come to Lebanon? I'll be there in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I know you speak Arabic, although it's a completely different dialect in Moroccan than Lebanese. But uh, he said, sure, man, let's do it. And uh, and then we went off. And some of those stories are charted in the book. And uh, my life with Saeed was always just in these small vignettes. Every six months, he comes to the States before the pandemic, or I'd go somewhere in Europe, and uh, we would just meet up. And I found his entire manner uh, really unique. He's, of course, a mystic in a, in a true sense. So he may not relate to the everyman's journey of life or climbing. But I think he gives some insight into just how how spiritual that stuff can be. And I think that it's, for me, it's always been a part of that's part of the climbing journey or process that I've embraced personally. And he's also just kind of completely manic and, and of the world. And uh, I think he shines a light for kind of all people and all cultures. Uh, obviously, in the last couple of years, he may uh, have run into some level of controversy. But I think that that's also in his character to be sort of a, a bit rough and raw. And uh, I don't think that that's uh, atypical of our history as climbers either. There's sort of controversy and ruggedness and uh, brazenness all throughout. But more than anything, what I summarize in his uh, story or short story is in spite of sort of his known character defects that he admits all throughout his little narrative, he's, he's always searching for a depth of order. Uh, that's usually what you find in his music style in Ganawa. It's very ritualistic, but the foundation of that ritual is in order, like you create this base environment in order to have like a pure free expression uh, erupt or emerge. And I think that's what he looks for in movement and climbing. And I think that's what a lot of us look for in climbing. But it's been my experience that a lot of us are looking for uh, some of that order. And we both resist order, but we also need it in order to manifest some of the best stuff we, we can put out there into our communities, friendships, relationships, and of course, our, our climbing discipline. I would say the final piece about Shanjin uh, Lee um, she's, uh, sort of, I, I guess she might be a bit of an underground figure. She's a friend of mine. I met through rock creation as well about 11 years ago. And she is a, a orthopedic surgeon, a, a bright and shining human being, uh, Chinese by heritage, you know, has had a really long journey of a lifetime, um, basically pursuing excellence, uh, without it being at the cost of her character. 
And uh, I thought for a million reasons beyond just the climbing community, that's a great example of how to embrace our full humanity and our full expression of talent, purpose, all of those principles involved. And so while her story, I think, doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of some of her struggles as much as I would have liked, uh, I think throughout the book as a whole, I presented a lot of the struggles and calamity in the first half of the book, people dealing with death and loss and grief and life struggles. The second half of the book, from sort of the midpoint of Saeed's story onward, is more to me like model characters or moments of solution. Uh, sometimes they're just momentary in a single incident. Other times they're sort of the theme of a character. But those, those two folks, I'd say Saeed, Sean Jean, they're, they're fantastic. To be honest, my favorite story is the Native American story about the distance runners, but that's probably not uh, climbing specific at the moment. So we'll, we'll save that for another time. I think that Andrew and I, is, as much as we talk about climbing and everything else, we actually, I think we gravitate away from necessarily climbing stories when we're interested in writing or, or uh, spending our spare time elsewhere. So um, it's certainly not uh, inappropriate to, to present any of these other stories um, as, you know, like you said, they're applicable uh, to life, not just to our pursuit of climbing. You know, you went through this experience of, I think probably going deeper with, if, if these people were already your associates and friends, you know, maybe going deeper on your thoughts about them and, and maybe in terms of talking with them than you had it's sort of in normal life. A lot of times we can have pretty good friendships and still not know everything about a person. Um, what was that, you know, kind of journey like in terms of being presented with this book and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the changes that it made in you, whether your perspective on life, your perspective on these people, um, as you were, you know, trying to delve deeper maybe than the surface that you had, had seen. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that's that's a good question. It, it, it could probably have a unique answer to each story, which would be, it's a delicate thing. Uh, definitely, each relationship that I had with, with the people that are in the, each of the stories was already there before the stories came about. And when the option to write a book came about, I had to, yeah, like basically sift through some of my uh, relationships and friendships and say, well, <laughs> I value all of these equally. I, I love so many people in my life, probably some that are even closer in, into my inner circle. But uh, my thought was, again, uh, if I could be so uh, arrogant <laughs> in assumption, uh, I thought, what, what perhaps in my 10, 12 years of climbing experience at the time, what do I think would be a conversation or something to sort of uh, navigate around or, you know, what, what are we talking about and what are we also not talking about and highlighting? I don't, I don't mean to talk down on anything or institution. I think that we see a lot in climbing media of similar stories. And in the last few years, that's changed a lot with different levels of representation, climbing ability, skill, physical limitations, mental limitations, whatever it be. Uh, I was sort of on that thread. Like I, I, w I knowingly went toward people that I thought had a, a similar but a little bit less traditional climbing or personal narrative, people who had endured struggle and so forth. And then, yeah, as a friend, it becomes difficult to say, hey, so, you know, so-and-so, I'm coming to you. And uh, <laughs> how do you feel about opening up the darker parts of your life? And we have no idea who the audience will be. This book can be bought or purchased perhaps by 100 people. Who knows? I don't know how many it's sold. I don't think it's many. Maybe I'll end up with a couple thousand. It's out of our hands, that's for sure. But how would you feel, given friends, whoever you are, uh, about opening up the details of your life for a larger audience? And that's something that takes, I think, trust and faith and a good relationship and then a lot of balance and, and whatnot. I'll say that in the writing process, I always send the first draft, second draft to the characters that I'm writing about first uh, before I send it to a publisher or anything. And uh, I sort of get their thumbs up and say, hey, this is what I'm going for. And I've yet to experience anything where uh, there's resistance and they go, no, 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 don't do this or don't do that. So either that means maybe I'm not digging deep enough, uh, but I think that uh, I think that I probably am. I think that truth is in there. Um, but I think it also speaks to like the kind of relationships that you're keeping and making sure that when you're a writer or you're telling the story that you also include the person who you're representing in your ultimate vision. Say, hey, your story is just one chapter in a collection of 10. So while it might feel like or focus uh, on this aspect, 
just trust me when I say that there's going to be a larger representation. I hope that kind of answers your question. But yeah, there are some strategies, some of it's kind of freestyling, but ultimately I think it comes down to maintaining and keeping really good relationships. And then uh, look, man, to be honest, if you're going to do anything creative, I think you have to like spend in, you know, inside space. You got to, you know, whatever it is, cook, play music, do something other than climbing. Some, some people meditate. I, I try very uh, probably unsuccessfully, but um, you know, yeah, I think you got to get quiet and go to an inside space and say, all right, like what's trying to come out and do your best to kind of stand aside, get out of the way and let that stuff come out. So it's a practice. I want to press you on that um, answer a little bit um, because one of the things that you wrote about Brad, um, you kind of characterized him as having not really faced much tension in his life. And you kind of render him as in some ways, it seems a little bit like you're giving him this Gaussian filter of being like this perfect person in, in some way. And I know, have, know having written about dead friends in the aftermath of their passing, it's, it's can be difficult to s- balance that tension between speaking honestly about someone and warts and all and wanting to pay homage to them in a way that feels like elevates their, their character and and their personality Mm -hmm. and what they mean to you and to the community. And so maybe you could just speak a little bit about any tension that you felt um, writing about Brad and, and maybe just more broadly your thoughts about writing about people in, um, in the wake of their deaths. Yeah, uh, it's a great question, uh, and and thanks for the prompt. I I think again that for each writer or person who's going to tell a story, whether that's in film or music or whatever, uh, you're going to have to come to your own conclusions on where you want to where you want to go and how you want to say what you're attempting to. And it's tough because a lot of times the inner uh, conversation you have as a creative person is it never gets seen or known or understood by you know the end result. I'll point a little bit to also what I put in the introduction of the book is that it's fully nonfiction. And I know you're not questioning the validity of that, uh, but which is to say like it's nonfiction, but it's also, it's not without interpretation. Uh, and that, and it's my belief that truth is more than just the details that happen as a matter of fact. Uh, when we write stories, uh, we can create nonfiction, but also pull different strings of truth, like at a deeper level or a deeper tone. And in that context, um, and again, that's an operating theory. I'm not saying that's fact, but that's just my current position. With that in mind, when it came to someone like Brad's character, there was definitely tension. I thought that enough attention had been paid at that stage in time to his sort of uh, foolhardiness or even like the dangerous aspects of what he did. For instance, in Cedar Wright's film, Safety Third, what I didn't think was represented enough was let's, can we, can we zoom out just a little bit and see like a, a macro view of what this character is, even without the individual Brad, like, I don't think I had seen a character in that modeling who was sort of so as I think I described maybe one dimensional, but also like perfectly reduced in that like chemical molecular or Eastern religious sense, like where perfection is a matter of subtraction, not addition. Nothing, nothing more could be taken away and, and nothing needed to be added to his character to me. And I thought that was like beautiful, especially because it was a challenge to find that in him where his character on the surface was generally to most people really happy-go-lucky, sometimes foolish, sometimes silly, uh, maybe even like, you know, fill in the blanks. Um, and, and I mean him great respect, of course. But yeah, so it was difficult. But within my, <laughs> I guess, quiet time or, or little meditations, I thought like, well, what, what is it in Brad that I really like to manifest? And it sort of came out in that noble full character, but I thought that creating that image of him would serve him the greatest amount of justice because I, I couldn't really find that equal or counterpart anywhere else in, in the climbing lexicon or culture uh, to me. But that's what, that's where I wrote that from. And when it comes to other people, same thing. I think that as a whole, uh, as mentioned in the intro, I went through a period of my life that was defined by a lot of trials or, or darkness uh, through 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 substance abuse. And it's something that I look for these days is where people have uh, had struggle and pain and tension and, and not to like gloat in it or not for some schadenfreude, but in order to really feel that, to resonate with it, and then hopefully show those things. So I'm sure there are parts of each person's story that I told that you could say, oh, you didn't really go that deep or 
or this person's a bit more abrasive, or maybe there's things that I missed out on. But for myself, ultimately, I think I found my answers by going inside and saying, what do I want to showcase? And what do I think are the greatest struggles that could relate most to an audience? Basically, I guess it's an act of faith. It, it reminds me of that old John Long quote about not letting the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that's exactly it. And uh, that can be taken two ways that can that can qualify all types of grandiosity and 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 you know but i don't think that that's what that quote means i think it means yeah let's let's tell let's look at truth as sort of something that has different layers to it right and uh let's go for the deeper layers and and then you know if anything you can always chisel your way back up towards the superficial if you have to but i i prefer the notion to try to start as deep as i can in the aspect of character development or what a character's traits are and then work my work find find a way to make the superficial details resonate with what I'm pulling at on a deeper level. And I, I hope that's I hope that's not totally disingenuous to superficial truth as as we find it. So well, we'll see. yeah. I mean, I think like aside from old John Long, uh, you know, Ho Man. But uh, you know, I was thinking more in terms of um, Tim O'Brien, uh, you know, the author of the things they carried, uh, among other many other great books, but he presented this idea of the happening truth versus the story truth. There's a quote uh, from The Things They Carried, this isn't verbatim, but pretty close, is that that's a true story that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, get, he, he played very much with this idea of like, here's, here's like the legitimate facts of what happened. And then this interpretation of those facts is really where the quote unquote truth comes or the emotional truth or, or you know, the, the thing that that gets to the essence of the matter. And, um, and again, not, not that it takes you making up facts, but as soon as it goes through the lens of the author, then it's reinterpreted. Things change in a sense while still caping the facts of the story of what happened of, you know, what Brad did. Um, but who Brad was really is, is your interpretation because it's through your lens. And I think that's what I read in there. And, and an interesting thing that happened the other morning is I talked to Jim Reynolds his, you know, one of his partners, uh, the partner on the nose uh, record and in the film and stuff. And he gave kind of a, a eulogy as an answer to a question about Brad. And um, he said a lot of the very same things uh, that that. And so I, I found that reading that again this morning by you. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a pretty close uh, vision of what of what Jim had of, of Brad as well. Um, you know, he, he had criticisms as well. And um, but that that kind of like. I mean, he said almost the same thing that you said, actually, that like he was the least conflicted person he had ever met, um, I think is what what his quote was or close to that. And and he was envious of that because he said that he was, you know, conflicted <laughs> yeah. a lot, you know, and yeah. and he did not. He almost said he didn't understand how Brad wasn't. And but he just wasn't. Yeah, I was really lucky with that piece. People like Jim and others reached out pretty much immediately when it started spreading on on the internet and uh, like Facebook messaging uh, or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people reached out and I was like, oh, man, people are going to read the title and think this is just like a hate piece because <laughs> right. it's called The Greater Fool. But uh, anyway, yeah, they I got a lot of support. And that's actually how Michael Kennedy and I got connected, who uh, wrote the foreword. And I don't mean that to name drop, but Obviously, you guys are friends with him, and he's, uh, to me, a, a legend in character, not just in our history of climbers. But when he reached out after that article and said, hey, I really like what you're trying to do here, uh, I think he could see the intention behind it. That was really an encouraging part of my process to think, okay, well, here's somebody I, I esteem greatly, and I think that they're encouraging me to keep trying what I'm trying to do, uh, even if you kind of fail here and there, don't get it every time. Man, I'll tell you what, it's crazy. Like that story led to, you know, a great relationship with Michael. We correspond often. And uh, even with Brad's parents, uh, I, you know, recently had dinner with Pamela and Jim and uh, even people like Jim Reynolds. We've been on the phone a few times. It's just been incredible how how much life uh, that story has given me. And hopefully it's not a one-way street. I hope that my influence on others is is something of value uh, as well. You know, I don't know necessarily where that fits to this conversation, but I think that uh, this is sort of crossing the line between what's the creative work and then what's what does that actually do to our real lives when we when we put things out there. I'm sure you guys know through the media you've produced and the stories you've written, you probably have gotten a ton of relationships out of that work, actual like friendships and different things that that enrich your life. And uh, 
for me, that's always been a metric of if I'm, if I, if I look deep into the corridors of my heart, if I can find that, like the real output of, uh, of my life, like the, the impact on my real life is that there's relationships that are being built or developed through the, the act of writing as it's sort of an act of faith, if you will. It's encouraging for me. So for all those reasons, I think Brad's story and a lot of these stories have just led to this maze of events in my life that have been really, um, yeah, just resounding and, and impactful and encouraging. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It just keeps happening. I just show up for it. What's your pursuit in terms of your craft of writing? Um, are you... You know, how, how are you pursuing, like, uh, developing that um, now? You know, you've you like kind of jumped right in with putting a book out uh, pretty quickly, you know, <laughs> um, I think in terms because I read in the introduction how, you know, how you had started writing, but how you had felt like an amateur, or like, a, you know, sort of a writing Gumby, if you want to put it towards climbing and then mm -hmm. um, developed into writing this book. So where does your writing go from here? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the exciting question. Uh, right now, uh, the acute phase is when I was approached by D'Angelo Publications, a lady named Sequoia, who's wonderful. She runs that company. She was really excited about it. And she actually said, hey, let's do, let's do two. <laughs> so uh, the contract that I signed, having never done this before, was a two book contract. Uh, so there's another one in the works as we speak. Uh, I, I'm not at liberty to talk about, I think, like what the subject is about. I think that's in the contract. It's not like a big conspiracy or anything. It's just, uh, as far as I know, I'd rather uh, be safe than sorry. So I don't want to breach contract, but it's, uh, it'll, be, it'll be climbing related. Um, and so that's book number two. And that's supposed to be submitted at the end of the summer. Uh, that being said, I'm in my second year of nursing school, which is kicking my ass. Uh, and, and that's really a... <laughs> It's my primary focus, so right. I never really thought that I would be having the opportunity to write and do nursing at the same time. I honestly didn't think so, and uh, it took a lot of, like I said, honest conversations with my significant other and sort of <laughs> prayer and meditation to to accept that contract when it came because we both knew it was going to be making life a little difficult. Um, but yeah, so that's next. Uh, the, the longer answer is, you know... I think as you guys probably know, if you like creative stuff, sometimes it just comes up out of you. So even when I'm in the midst of a really big like nursing school deadline or a research paper, man, there are times when something comes into my head and I just have to start writing and it happens in odd hours of the night or whatever. And I take those moments gladly and I, you know, if they rob me of sleep, so be it. But it's not sustainable. That's not a great way to do things. But for now, for the next year of nursing school, I think that they, uh, I think they qualify. That means I'm still writing some short stories, one of which my most recent short story, um, Luke Mihal at the Climbing Zine is going to put out, I think, in the next month or so for his next edition. I enjoyed that one. I hope you guys will, too. I think, I, Andrew, I think I sent that one to you actually on email. It's called uh, Angels of Light. Uh, it's really relatively a short story. It's like 6,000 words, and usually I write about 10. Um, so it's it was a struggle for me. In my mind, there's at least one more climbing short story collection that I'd like to do. Characters and friends of mine that I didn't get to highlight in this first book. I would love to write about them after nursing school with a little bit less pressure on life. And uh, the really exciting part for me is I would love to get to a place where I can start writing more stories about people that aren't climbers. I grew up with a slew of other creative folk who ended up in rock bands and uh, great kitchens across America. Uh, my brother's a, a fantastic cook and a chef. I've been steeped into that world of both the writing side of it. And, and you know, I worked as a sommelier server bartender for years and, you know, friends with different DJs and musicians and, and the ability to tell the stories of the other creative folk in our, in our culture or society would be uh, a deep joy. I hope I get the chance to do it. And I'm not sure what that would look like, but, uh, I, yeah, I would just love to tell stories of, of kind of everyone, you know, with the nursing, that's also part of it. I figured nursing would be a great way to get into some of the marginalized countries that I've been to in my past. I did some humanitarian work just out of high school, it took me to Central and South America. And then, of course, with the significant other being based in Lebanon, I've seen a lot of stuff out there in the Middle East that I would love to have a, an ability to participate in. Um, yeah, obviously, it, it's topical at best. There's huge systemic problems out there and all over the world. 
an ambitious little person who's a, got a nursing degree isn't going to change the world, but I think you can get into IDP camps and uh, tell some stories and shed some light in places, and that'd be cool too. So we'll see. Well, yeah, just to go back to um, what you mentioned, Michael Kennedy said about noticing your intention to try to tell these stories. Uh, that you know, that was the reason that Chris and I wanted to have you on the podcast and just highlight people who notice the um, the meaning in the fabric of our sport and the, the intention behind the people who are doing it at, you know, maybe a more thoughtful or higher level on just kind of like the spiritual quest of becoming a better person and not just the top athlete necessarily. So um, yeah, that's important work. It's especially important given just how rare that quality seems to be in so much of the media that we kind of flip through casually with our thumbs on our phones so thank you for bringing your intellect and um, observations and ability to just call attention to the depth of what it is that we're doing. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, it's, a, it's a humble effort. I uh, did my best so to, to take a good lump sum of the people I've seen and, and what, it, what it is that they're doing out there, what's valuable to us. And yeah, you know, I, I guess if I'm reflecting on like the pandemic or something, uh, when, when at first most of us were locked in because we weren't sure what was going on, I think we all know climbing outside is pretty safe now. But my point is, I think that equally what, what I missed and I think what other people missed was all that stuff, right? It wasn't just like, oh, I want to go push the next grade. But they miss being outside for all the other stuff that it does for us, how it kind of is a sap to our emotional traumas and, and a point of inspiration and hope. And so, yeah, it was clear, you know, when you take the climbing away, what I often miss or long for is much more than just the tactile motions. Although I love those. I love movement itself and actually animating my body through gravity and space. But there's more to it. And uh, I guess I was trying my best to paying homage to some of that stuff. So I appreciate your encouragement, guys. Cool. And then the book is um, Aperture-like. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, D'AngeloPublications.com. And I'll, I'll run an excerpt on my site, Evening Send. So if you're listening, you can check it out there too. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I, uh, I can't say thank you enough. It's been a, an honor and a joy to be here. Keep up the great work. Hey folks, despite big money sponsors calling on lines 2, 3, and 4, we've consciously decided to keep the run out entirely listener supported. So that way, we can literally say whatever the hell we want, take chances, and sometimes put our foots in our respective mouths, or in each other's mouths, as the case may be. And that's entertainment, folks. So if you too live by that philosophy, or wish you did, then consider becoming a supporter of the runout by going to patreon.com slash runout podcast and becoming a runout rope gun today. Membership comes with good feelings and bonus material. So we'll see you there. Today's final bit comes from Colin Powick, who is one of the corner office suits at Black Diamond Equipment. But when he's not issuing memos and directives to the drones in Sector 7G, KP likes to sneak off to the QC lab to get back to his roots and break some gear. Let's listen in. Hey there, I'm Colin Powick with Black Diamond. I'm sitting in our testing lab, the QA lab here in Salt Lake City with my main QA engineer, Hunter. And we're going to test a bunch of gear and see what it sounds like. And here at Black Diamond, we are proud sponsors of uh, the, the what? The run what? Run out. Who? Bisharat? Caloose, I don't know, whatever. All right, we're going to break some gear and see what it sounds like. Let's check it out. Ooh, neutrino. Over 5,500 pounds. Wahoo. Lightwire. 6,700 pounds. Wahoo, that was a hot forge, 6,200 pounds, exciting. Ooh. 0.75 Camelot, kaboom, 3,500 pounds. Boo, dud, 
little mini teeny weeny hex, 1800 pounds. Still hold you. Nylon sling, daddy, over 5,000 pounds. have it a bunch of broken gear a bunch of different sounds let me just say if you hear any of those sounds out in the field something has gone uh, horribly wrong so let's make sure that doesn't happen be safe out there you've just completed another episode of the runout a podcast from the sharp end of climbing i'm andrew bisharat and i run evening sends the only climbing website on the internet and I'm Chris Kalutz, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast on the internet. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.